Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who ha- <coughs> Excuse me. The one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive. But you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life. But I will announce before my father, and his angels, that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Good morning. I want to apologize in advance for the pneumonia you're going to get this week from the cold in here. I don't know what happened to the AC, but um, if it's like this next week, bring your meat to church and we can keep it nice and cold for you. I'm freezing. I normally like this kind of cold, but I'm freezing today. So hopefully it'll keep you awake and not be too much of a distraction. If you're joining us for the first time, if you're a visitor, um, we've been working our way through a series Jesus, in the first couple chapters of the book of Revelation, that's the last book of the Bible, wrote a series of seven letters. Rather, he dictated them to the Apostle John, who wrote them down. And these were seven letters to seven important, prominent churches in an area called Asia Minor, which is now Turkey today. And these seven letters really give a a revelation of what is on the heart of God for the church. And because we're a church, as we hear these things, it's as if Jesus is telling us some of the things he expects and wants from the church. Now, I think that's important because we all come to church with our own expectations and standards. We know what we hope and want to get out of this church. But I think it's much more of an important question to consider what is it that Jesus wants from his church. After all, the church, we're told, is his bride. And I think the groom has a right to have some expectations of his own bride. At the beginning of the series, I shared with you that the the letters are each addressed to the city in which the church resides. In other words, he doesn't give the name of a leader or the name of the church, but he gives the name of the city and he says, this is a letter to the church in such and such a town. And the reason that's important is because in Jesus' view, The city and the church are linked. 
you can't just say we happen to meet here, but we have no regard for or effect from the city we're in. But we are affected by and we are called to affect the towns and the cities and villages in which we worship God. And so when he addresses these things to the city, it's because there is an undeniable linkage between the church and the city in which it lives. And I think that is no, no more true for any of the seven churches than it is for Sardis. Sardis is one of the churches that so closely resembled the history and the flavor of the city that it lived in. And here's the interesting thing about this letter to the church in Sardis. All the other letters till now had this formula. Jesus would introduce himself and then he would begin with a compliment. You know how sometimes affirming something makes the medicine go down? So he would say, now you guys are pretty good on this stuff, but on this I got a problem. And so he would give the good news first and then whack him with the bad news. For the church in Sardis, he's got nothing good to say. He wastes no time. He jumps right to the rebuke. And so that should kind of jolt us, wake us up. Here's a church that received no affirmation from Jesus. It's a church that was so troubling to the heart of Christ that he could not think of something good to say. And so he just went right into the problems that he saw. And here's the first thing that I see is that what they receive is a very unexpected rebuke. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, if you were to visit the church in Sardis, if you could travel back in time and walk around and tour their facility and meet their leaders, you would probably look around to the church and find no obvious glaring problems. You would check out their programs. You would look at all their printed materials, visit their website. I know they didn't have websites, but let's just pretend. And you would say, you know, Ashley, when I look at their programs, when I look at their worship, when I look at their people, their resources, this is actually a pretty decent church. You might even say that the church seems kind of alive as you walk around. And I think the people in the church at Sardis would have agreed with you. And that's why you can imagine the shock that they experienced when Jesus wrote them a letter. And here's the thing. They're expecting some, oh, ooh, all the other churches. That, you know, Because remember, the, all seven letters came to all seven churches. So they're reading each other's mail. And I'm sure they're reading the first four letters like, man, look at those punks over there. What are they doing over in Pergamum and Thyatira? And what are they doing in Ephesus? And they're hearing all that. And all of a sudden, they get to their letter and like, oh, Jesus is going to give us an A- minus at least. And then they read this. And like, what happened? We don't even get a compliment right to the punch in the face. And he says to us, you have a reputation of being alive. But here's news for you. You're dead. You are a dead church that thinks it's alive. That had to be a shock, right? That had to be a shock. When I first went to seminary, it was with the idea, or rather, if I'm honest, with the bargain with God that I would go to seminary if he would let me be a medical missionary. I wanted to follow in my younger brother's footsteps. That's not the usual pattern of things if you're Asian, but I wanted to follow my younger brother's footsteps and I wanted to be a medical missionary like him. So I blazed through seminary in two and a half years. I got excellent grades. I studied for the MCAT in my last quarter at seminary. I got a very solid score. I got all my applications done in plenty of time before the posted deadlines. I, I wrote what I thought were some pretty kick-butt admissions essays. I mean, they were good essays, at least according to my opinion. 
And so there I was feeling really, really good about where I stood. I spent about $2,000. I applied to over 20 schools. And in my heart, I was absolutely sure that I was going to get into at least one of them. And I was sure not only because I had my ducks in a row, but because I had a good cause I was pursuing. Surely God would not block the way of someone who wanted to be a medical missionary. And so you can imagine my surprise and shock when one by one the rejection letters started coming in. We regret to inform you. Thank you for your application. And on and on it went. And I was like, something is not right here. It's not adding up. I did everything right. There's no reason. And there were some schools I was like really offended. You, even you guys rejected me. I should be rejecting you and picking a better school. And you rejected me. So I was so perplexed, I began asking around to some of my friends who had gone to medical school. They said, you're a complete idiot. You turned it. I know the posted application deadline is December. But if you don't get your applications in by June, you have no chance. And I submitted mine in like October to November. I was already, I had no chance from the start. It was a lost cause. And what I learned from that is it can be really jarring to get an unexpected rejection. You know what I mean? Where you, you, you totally are sure you're going to hear good news. And bam, just like that, you hear bad news. And the problem was that the stuff I was paying attention to was fine. I was looking at that stuff, paying attention to it, noticing it, tracking it. And there was no problem there. It was the stuff I wasn't thinking about that I didn't know, which really got me in the end. I wonder if you've ever received an unexpected rejection like that. I mean, maybe you're in a relationship, you think it's going so well, she's totally into you, and then she goes, it's not you, it's me. What happened? I thought we were doing great. Why would you dump me now? Maybe you got let go from a job where you thought you were the most critical resource in the entire organization, and they fired you. Maybe you got a bad grade on a test that you swore you aced. Or maybe you thought you were at the top of your physical health. You're jogging all the time and then you go to your doctor and you hear a devastating diagnosis and you can't believe it because you feel fine. If you haven't experienced it, stick around. I'll bet you at some point in your life, you're going to receive some news that will knock the wind out of you because it will be so unexpected in its rejection and rebuke of you. Now, some of it is just life, but sometimes that unexpected negative turn in our lives is because we were tracking certain dials and completely ignoring other ones. We pride ourselves on the stuff we're winning at, but sometimes we don't realize that what's sinking us are the things we're neglecting, which are the matter of life and death for us. So Jesus says to them, and listen, it's never fun to receive an unexpected rebuke, especially from God. But look what he further says. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. What I really love about God is when he delivers bad news, it is rarely final. As long as we draw breath, God is a God of redemption. His desire is not simply to have us wallow in our failures and feel badly about where we are, but it is to wake us up so that we can respond in faithfulness and obedience to him. You know, the church at Sardis may not have liked what they read in that letter, 
but it was necessary for them to hear it. They might have not been flattered by the letter and may have even felt embarrassed that all the other churches read that letter too. But it was a necessary wake-up call. And Jesus here is saying to them, all is not lost. It is still possible to salvage this thing, but only if you will hear what I'm actually saying to you and receive it as the truth. Now, I'm, I'm 45, and I noticed an interesting thing about me recently. I haven't gone to the doctor since I was 38, and I don't want to go. I thought, that's a weird thing. Like, I should want to go. I grew up in a medical family. Everyone around me is in medicine. Why don't I want to go to the doctor? And I realized because at my age, the likelihood of hearing bad news just keeps going up. And I think I'm afraid of what that doctor might say to me one of these visits. I'm afraid of the words, why don't you have a seat? And so, like an idiot... Like a small child, I think if I just don't go, it can't get me. Any of you guys in that boat? Where are my brothers at who haven't seen a doctor in 20 years? Come on. Yeah. Go to the doctor. I'm going to try to go this month because I think it's important we stop living our lives in denial as if burying our heads in the sand makes all the bad stuff go away. So often... Early detection is the key to recovery, but we don't understand that. We put off the bad news. We don't dare ask the hard questions or sit before God openly and say, please tell me the truth about myself. Instead, we surround ourselves with everybody who tells us exactly what we already know about ourselves. We are awesome. I love the people who tell me I'm awesome. I make sure that I seek those people out and keep them very close to me so that when I'm not feeling good, I go, hey, how am I again? You're awesome. (laughs) Thanks. I kind of knew that, but you really affirmed what I already knew to be true. That's how we are. We so love to feel good, we would rather dispense with the truth and keep feeling good than face what the reality is. But what if the reality, the indictment over our lives is that we're not as great as we feel we are? That depending on the scale by which we measure ourselves, either you get an A or an F, and everything depends on the answer key. And what if you've been grading your life, and what if we've been grading our church on the wrong scale? And this has haunted me all week, wondering, what would our grade be if Jesus is doing the grading as a church? It's often not the stuff you're tracking and feeling good about that'll get you. It's the stuff you never pay attention to That often gets you in the end. And so that leads us to a second observation. And that is that the church at Sardis was surprised by the rebuke because they graded themselves on an insufficient standard. Jesus says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Why? For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. He has taken a good look at what they're doing. And here's what he's basically saying. The problem is not with what's there. The problem is with what's missing. It's not that you're sitting around doing nothing. His complaint against the church in Sardis is not that they're lazy or idle or inactive, but that in everything they're doing, something very important is missing from all of it. 
And I think this is the part that is most weighed on my heart as I've written this message, as I prepared for it. I just can't shake the feeling that this might be true of us. And it might be true of me personally and of my family, and maybe it might be true of yours as well. He saw their works, and the works were okay, but they weren't complete. Something in the midst of all that activity and apparent perfection was vitally missing. And as a result, when God looked at it, he wasn't as impressed as they were with themselves. See, if you measure a church in terms of activities and structures, many churches will come off with a very good score. In fact, I think if you look at Harvest through the lens of activities and programs and resources and structures and certainly leadership, <clears throat> we're going to get a decent score. I think we, we have a good basic infrastructure as a church. But what if that is not the only standard by which Jesus measures his bride? I mean, what if we're talking about a real marriage between a man and his bride? And she says, yeah, but I cook for you. I make myself available to you. I clip your toenails. I clean your ears. I even wash your car. I'm going through all the motions. I'm doing everything a wife should do. And she says, yeah, I know you are. The resume is perfect, but I can't shake the feeling. Something's missing between us. You're doing everything. I can't really complain. I would never win the case in a court of law. Yet in my heart, I know something is missing. It just doesn't feel alive to me. And I can't fault you on your activities or on the structure of our household. But there is something that's supposed to be in a marriage that doesn't appear to exist with us. That might strike close home because some of you, I'm not even talking about the church anymore. I'm talking about your house, your family. We have a marriage in form only, but something very important is missing. And that's why I am so bent on getting my feeling of aliveness somewhere else. What if the measure by which Jesus evaluates his bride is different than the measure by which the bride evaluates herself? I mean, what if God looks at harvest and doesn't see what we see? Should that bother us? Should that move us to action? Here's an interesting thing that he says in the letter. I know your works. You have, he chooses this word carefully, you have the name or the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. He's not simply saying that you call yourself alive, but that the city around you also gives you that name. What he's saying to the church in Sardis is, you're really well regarded in your city. The city likes you. They have nothing but good things to say about you. In fact, of all the churches he writes letters to, this is the one church there's no mention of any persecution or spiritual pressure. All the other churches had to duke it out at a spiritual realm either with enemies within the church or enemies outside the church. This church had no enemies. Nobody was giving the Christians in Sardis a hard time whatsoever. And a lot of commentators, after studying this text, have pronounced this verdict. It's because they were the epitome of inoffensive Christianity. No one persecuted them because they were so harmless, it wasn't worth persecuting. Persecuting. 
They sit in our city and are just good citizens. They don't make any trouble. They certainly don't make us feel uncomfortable. Leave them alone. They're harmless. The citizens of Sardis considered this church a good member, a part of its community, and they granted this church a good opinion or a good reputation. Now, I don't mean to suggest that that's a bad thing, that we should be afraid of a good reputation. In fact, in other passages, we're told we should have a high regard in the eyes of the world around us. But the the high opinion of the world around us is not an automatic badge of honor. Just because the city we're in appreciates us doesn't automatically mean we're being faithful to the call of Christ in our city, does it? In some cases, a city praises a church because its message is toothless. The truth they teach bothers no one. It's totally accommodated to the massive um, opinions of society at large. No one's going to be offended by anything God says through that church. Can you imagine an animal trying to kill you and it has no teeth, just gumming you to death, all wet and slimy? And That's what it feels like sometimes at some churches. It's like you're being gummed to death. It's not a good image. But when you pull the teeth out of the truth, no one's going to be bothered by you at all. I'm not suggesting that we should be obnoxious or arrogant. But you'll see in a moment that if everybody is totally comfortable with the church, sometimes that is a sign that something is wrong in the church. Listen to what one commentator, Sam Storms, had to say. If the surrounding culture declares that we, the church, are alive, but Jesus says that we are dead, something's seriously wrong with our standard of success. Now, I know some of you are contrarians by nature, and while I'm preaching, what, what you're mostly doing is having a boxing match in your brain with me. That's cool. I think that's the way a lot of people process truth. But listen, don't, don't make me say something I'm not saying. I'm not saying we should be jerks. I'm not saying that we as people or we as a community ought to be abrasive and obnoxious. But I am saying what God has already said in his word Listen, in, in Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And what is that message by nature? To Jews, it's a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. Let me break that down for you, what that means. To religious people, our claims are an offense because it runs exactly counter to their claims. To religious people, the claim of the gospel cannot be reconciled to what they already believe. You cannot somehow mixed together Christianity and any other faith. So for the already committed, the gospel is an affront to what they believe. And to the irreligious, it sounds like idiocy. They smile, they tolerate you, but behind your back, they look at you and go, you really believe that crap? Really? A guy died and then he came back to life and one day he's going to float down on a cloud and bodies are going to come out of the graves and you're going to all go to heaven and there's going to be a new city up there and you're going to live forever. And they smirk and they snicker because to the irreligious, the gospel is nonsense. 
I think what Paul is saying is by its very nature, the true gospel of Christ crucified doesn't sit well with most people outside of the family of Christ. Because pretty much everyone outside is either religious or irreligious or on the way into the family. For the ones who are being saved, Paul declares in the very next verse, it is the power of God for salvation. But for everybody else, it's going to bother them if we're telling it right. But when we don't preach Christ crucified, in fact, when we don't preach Christ at all, but we preach five steps to becoming the greatest dad in the world, that message is being preached all over America on Father's Day today. How to become an awesome dad. And it's no different than what you hear at the Rotary Club or the community center or a synagogue or a mosque. If we don't preach Christ, no one will be offended by us. Because our message then is pretty much what every decent-hearted citizen is already saying. Be good to each other. Take care of one another. Pay your taxes. Tip the waiters. Don't speed. If the world affirms us because our ministry is nothing more than human goodwill and generosity, if the world affirms us because our message is a toothless and inoffensive message, then that is not a badge of honor for us to wear. Any more than it was for the church at Sardis to say, we have a good reputation in the city. You want to know why they like you so much? Because you bother no one. You keep to yourselves. Your message has no teeth. And your ministry is just what all the rest of us are already doing too. Jesus himself said in the Gospels, in Matthew 10, 34, listen to these words. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Here's what he really meant by that. My message isn't here to kumbaya, everyone feel good together, never mind what you believe, all roads lead to heaven. That is not why he had come. He had come to do violence to the order of things without him. To say to people, and here's what, the way one person put it, he brought comfort to the agitated and he brought agitation to the comfortable. For the people who did not know him, his message would not let them stay in bed and keep hitting the snooze button. It was meant to rouse them and to show them that they were dead, though they felt alive. And this is a message he brings to the church in Sardis. Don't be too quick to believe your own press. Don't be so persuaded by the reception, the affirmation of those outside of God's family who look at you and say, hooray for that church. It's okay to be loved by the world and appreciated by them if we're doing our job well. But listen, what he's saying is don't hear the applause of the world and forget to ask Jesus what he thinks about the church. It's his church and it's his opinion of us that is primarily and predominantly important for us. The most important thing for any church is what our Lord thinks of us and what we're doing when we gather together. I think this is also important. Remember that in the beginning of every letter, the introduction he gives is a little piece of the overall introduction that John gives in Revelation 1. And so he picks little pieces of that introduction that are relevant to the message he's bringing to each city. And so to this dead church in Sardis, he says, let me tell you who I am. I am the one who has the seven spirits and I'm the one who has the seven stars. 
I won't belabor that. Let me just give you a quick interpretation. It means two things. I am the one who has authority over all the churches, and I'm the one who is also the Holy Spirit, God in spirit. I think what he's trying to say is, if you really want to know whether your church is doing okay, you're going to know it based on your response to and your reception by me, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We're going to touch on that a little more at the conclusion. But this is the real measure of a church. Is, is it the church with which Jesus, the Son of God, is pleased? Is being lifted up? Is the central figure? Is it the church where everything we do is because he has asked it of us? And is it a church that is alive because the Holy Spirit is doing with what we do more than what we could do by ourselves? Is there power in that church? Is there power? Let me give you a last um, observation about this church. Part of the reason that they were so shocked by the rebuke was that they had a false sense of security. And to, order, to really understand this, you've got to know a little bit about the history of the city of Sardis that's not available to you in the words of Scripture. So let me give you a quick history lesson. For most of its 1,200 years, uh, and by, by far, Sardis was the oldest of the seven cities that Jesus wrote to. Um, it's an ancient and glorious city with a very rich history. And for most of its 1,200-year history, it enjoyed a very, very secure position in its region. A big part of that security was because there was a large city in the river valley, but then there was also a a city called an Acropolis, a high city, that was built on top of a a little hill. I shouldn't call it a little hill. It was about 1,500 feet off the ground, and on three sides, it had a sheer cliff. The kind of cliffs that would make someone like Peter, you want to climb it. I just know. It's, it's that kind of cliff, just sheer cliff face, almost a straight vertical drop on three sides. And then on the back side was a very steep approach that connected to the mountains in the south. And what would happen is whenever they sensed a military threat coming towards them, they would all gather the citizens and peasants. They would run up that southern approach into the Acropolis. They would close the gates, and soldiers would man the walls, looking down into that steep southern approach. There's pretty much no way you're going to take that city by conventional warfare. To run uphill against a fortified wall is suicide, especially when the pass is so narrow that only 10 or 15 soldiers at a time can approach. And so for... Over a thousand years, this city stood as an impenetrable fortress, a natural fortress against attack. Here's the thing, though. When you live in a place of such safety and security, it's both a blessing and a curse, isn't it? Right? I mean, can we say that? When you're comfortable, it's both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because it's comfortable. But it's a curse because comfort makes human beings weak and soft and inattentive and unalert. Nobody grows when everything is too easy and comfortable. Do you guys ever watch Wally? Do you remember the people of the future in the movie Wally? We're all ginormous and riding around in motorized scooters because we don't even want to get up to walk. It just scoots us everywhere. We don't even, the TV isn't even across the room. We don't have to do a remote. It's just right there, wherever we go. And it's this idea that in the future, people don't want to do anything. Machines do everything for us. And so what happens to people is we don't grow healthier or stronger. 
See, the thing about comfort and safety and security is that at the same time, it is both a wonderful blessing not to be in danger and a curse in that every day you live that way, it's making you softer and weaker too. The people in Sardis presumed that every time there was danger, they could run to their fortress and be safe. As a a matter of fact, they considered those three steep cliff faces so impenetrable, so invulnerable to attack, they did not even bother to post sentries on the wall to look down. We don't even have to guard that. No one can get up there. Boy, were they wrong. That's the Acropolis. And twice in the city's history, they were defeated, and it was never by a frontal attack. It was always by sneak attack. In 546 BC, the Persian king Cyrus defeated the city. And then about 300 years later, in 214 BC, Antiochus III also defeated the city. And here's how they both did it. They found a fissure in that, cra- in, in that cliff, and skilled climbers actually were able to scale that. Well, look at this dude. I thought this was Photoshop. Like he was just, if it wasn't for the water, I thought he was, he was just on a rock climbing and they flipped the page. How do you stick to that? There's nothing to hold. But a good climber will tell you, as long as you've got a fingernails width, you can hang on. And so these guys scaled the walls and then they climbed over the wall and nobody challenged them because nobody looked where they thought they were secure. They climbed over the wall, walked through the city to the south, opened the gate, and the invading army just walked in. And that happened twice in their history. So you understand, uh, this is something that everybody who lived there was familiar with. Twice we've been burned, presuming that we were totally secure, totally safe, but we weren't as secure as we thought we were. And the place that we got attacked in was the one place we weren't looking And so Jesus says to that church, wake up. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. Now, that was an intentional jab at their history. No one in Sardis could hear those words and not associated with those, those two defeats. What he's saying is in the very place you don't even bother checking because you're so sure you're doing okay. If you don't ask me how you're really doing, it's in that place that I will come and I will judge you. In the very place you think you're getting an A, if you don't ask me to evaluate you, I will come suddenly and unexpectedly, and you will not like the evaluation you receive. It's not just a threat. He's saying this to people he loves. Wake up. Become watchful. Here's a a practical way of breaking that down. Please ask me what I think of you. Stop presuming things. Take a moment and sit in front of me and ask me, how do I look to you, God? Are you happy with the way I'm living my life? Are the things I'm pursuing pleasing to you? Are you okay with this? We ask one another. We ask, if you're married, you'll always ask your spouse, are you cool with me golfing tomorrow? You know, that's that's a a very husbandly thing to do. Um, Is it okay with you if I golf? And she goes, oh, sure. You look at her face. Is it really sure or is it, is it I'm going to get you later, sucker? Uh, which is it? Is it real yes or like, oh, yeah, go ahead because I got plans for you. And he's saying, look, don't play games with me. Just pause, sit down and ask me, is what I'm doing cool with you, God? I don't want to presume that just because I like it, you like it. 
I'm not going to presume that just because everyone's applauding what I'm doing, what I'm doing is okay, that it's healthy for me, that it's good for my soul. Do you have the courage to lay even your most prized pursuits and accomplishments on the altar of God and say, is this okay with you? Does it please you that I keep doing this this way? And sometimes you'll get the freedom of God saying to you, I'm totally cool with it. You go. You're like, all right. Now I can go golfing without worrying about how my wife's going to get her revenge because she totally is okay with it. I looked and she's like, oh, yeah, just, just go. Have fun. That's a wonderful way to golf. It's better than, yeah, if that's really that important to you, go ahead. And the whole time you're swinging, you're, you're shanking the ball, and you're, all you're thinking about is, man, I shouldn't even be out here. Do you know the difference? Sometimes God will give you such a full release that what you're doing will be added to it, a great zeal, a great freedom of spirit, even a mandate from God, pursue this, it's pleasing to to me. But once in a while, you will be surprised to hear that the thing everybody else applauded, God frowns on. See, for example, there's nothing morally wrong with being wealthy. But there's something spiritually toxic for some people at certain points of their lives to become wealthy or pursue wealth. So you can't say, well, is, is wealth good or bad? It's not such a cut and dried question. The real question is, God, right now, this season of my life, with my soul and the condition it's in, is it good for me to pursue wealth? Is it okay with you if I do that? Does it please you? Does it serve your purposes? Is it okay with you, God, if I stop working for the man and I start my own company? I want to. I can do it. I know I have the skill set. But is it good for you? And once in a while, you will hear God say to you things you don't want to hear but must hear. And that's the real crux of the, the issue is do you want to be evaluated by your standards or by his? Do you have the courage to ask him, is the way I'm living Pleasing to you. I I can share with you that uh, when I have asked that question this week, I haven't liked all the answers. It's none of your business, the specifics, all right? Mind your own business. But I'm going to tell you, I haven't liked all the answers. It's made me look at myself a little bit differently this week. I'm learning something about my motives and about how I move forward in life. And what I realized is there are some areas of my life where I had not really asked God's opinion of me in a very long time. How about you? Are you awake and watchful? I don't mean to say paranoid. I just mean watchful. Are there areas of your life that you have so accepted without question that you don't even watch the walls to see if there's danger coming from that place? Oh, this, no, I love doing this. This is no problem. I could totally handle this. And what if that's the place from which your spiritual death begins to creep in? What if that's the place where the thief sneaks over the wall and the city falls? So I'm not saying be paranoid, be insecure, but at least be watchful. Ask the question of God. I totally like this, but do you like it? Is it okay with you? Is there any danger here I should be alert to? Is there anything in this that might come back to bite me? I think it's so important that we make this the pattern of our life with God. 
And let me just end by sharing with you that I haven't just asked the question of myself, but I've been asking the question for Harvest. I guess here's the question I've been asking. How does Harvest measure up when it's Jesus doing the measuring? And in some areas, I think I've been very affirmed by Christ this week regarding our church. And in other areas, I feel very much a holy rebuke upon me and upon our church. So I just want to ask us as a church, and if you're a leader at Harvest, I want to ask this I'm going to ask you to be thinking this way about our ministry. Do we stand faithfully for what God says is the truth? Even in issues where the world clearly has made its perspective known and has promised us that if we disagree with them, we will be bigots, we will be unpopular, we will be hated. Are we standing faithfully for what God says is true no matter what it costs us to stand for that. Here's another question we need to ask as a church. Is Jesus really the head of this church? I mean, listen, we have great leaders. Okay, We have very good leaders. And I feel like we lead wisely. We plan strategically. We're not crazy people. Everything we do, we try to do with wisdom. But that's not necessarily the same as everything we do is because Jesus has asked it of us. Most of the time, the two things line up together. But here's the real question of us as a church, and perhaps you can extend this to you personally and to your family. Is the life we're living together best explained as a response of obedience to the commands of Christ? Is everything we're doing because he's truly the head of this church or because Pastor Dave read a book or went to a conference, got this crazy bug up his butt, now we're going to be this church or that church. That really bothered me this week because I thought back to our history, and I I can tell you there are a few episodes where I think I went to a conference and I took the church out of Jesus' hands, like, just leave us alone for a minute. I'm going to try this. And I really repented of those experiments. What I reaffirm this week, what I hope we all reaffirm together is Jesus, be the head of this church. Tell us what you want from us rather than us reading books and figuring out what's good church. Just tell us what you want and give us an obedient spirit with no compromises to do whatever you ask of us, no matter how crazy it is. If we could just establish that as the heartbeat of our church, I think this would be a very pleasing bride to Christ. And the last question is, is this a church where our ministry is empowered truly by the Holy Spirit of God? Where what we do isn't just good works and goodwill, the stuff that any band of human beings trying to be good people can accomplish. But in the midst of all of that, is there something no one can explain? A power that goes beyond good strategy and good stewardship of resources Something that goes beyond a generosity of spirit where we just go, how do you explain that? We hold a basketball camp and 50 children forever are changed and come to Christ. How do you explain that? Are there, are there stories like that throughout our church where we're doing good, but that's not really the difference maker? It's that the Holy Spirit shows up and there is power unleashed we cannot explain. 
I really think the heartbeat, the strength of this church are those of you who are faithfully praying all the time. We have prayer warriors at this church. Do you know that? There are people in this church who are praying like 80,000 times more than the rest. And I believe those people beseeching God, storming heaven's gates, saying, God, come and move. That's what God is responding to at harvest. It's those prayers that move the heart of God to add power to this ministry. And I'm not asking these questions presuming that we're going to flunk. I'm just saying, let's not leave three walls unguarded presuming anything about our church. Maybe our history was great, but what about today? How faithful are we being now? And let's have the courage to ask the hard questions and then sit still before Jesus while he answers however he will. I think it will change our lives personally and as a church if we take that approach to the way that we live. And I want to encourage you to do that even in your own life, in your own family, in your own relationships. Ask him what he thinks of you and then really listen to his evaluation and bend to what he says. I think it's going to change you, especially if you're heading for death. It'll change you towards life. Why don't we bow together? Let's pray. You know, it's easy for a sermon like this to come across as just rebuke, but really it's not the spirit in which I believe Jesus wrote it to the church at Sardis. It's certainly not the spirit with which it was preached here this morning. It is simply this. Whatever we ignore is where often the danger and destruction will come from. And so we must be attentive to everything in our lives. How you feel about a homework assignment is not as important as how the teacher feels about it. And so I think our confidence is most unshakable when it's because we heard what the greatest authority had to say about us. Maybe that's where you are today in your own life. You made some choices, you're pursuing some things, and you're getting some victories, but all the while you're not 100% at peace deep down in your soul. Why don't you just pause and say, God, I chose to live a certain way. Today, I'm going to honor you by asking, is the way I've chosen to live good for my soul and honoring to you? And anything in my life that offends you, that is making me open to destruction, tell me, because I want to put an end to it. Is it a business practice? Is it a greed that is taking root in your heart? Is it a pursuit that has become an obsession, an addiction? What is it? And there's nothing wrong with just telling God, just speak to me. I want your opinion on this. I've asked everybody else but you. And so now I'm going to honor you. I'm just going to ask the question, is what I'm doing pleasing and honoring to you? I'm just going to give you a minute 
if your heart is ready for it, to just begin asking that question and starting to listen for the response of God. So why don't we take a couple minutes and just listen. Ask the question and listen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.